Section 30 of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott Volume 1 by Robert Falcon Scott This is a LibriVox recording. Section 30 Chapter 14 Preparations The Spring Journey Part 2 Sunday, October the 1st Returned on Thursday from a remarkably pleasant and instructive little spring journey after an absence of thirteen days from September the 15th. We covered 152 geographical miles by sledging, 175 statute miles, in ten marching days. It took us two and a half days to reach Butter Point, 28 and a half geographic miles, carrying a part of the Western Party stores, which brought our load to 180 pounds a man. Everything very comfortable, double tent, great asset, the sixteenth, the most glorious day, till four p.m., then cold southerly wind. We captured many frostbites. Surface only fairly good. A good many heaps of loose snow which brought sledge up standing. This seems a good deal more snow this side of the strait. Query, less wind. Bowers insists on doing all camp work. He is a positive wonder. I never met such a sledge traveller. The Sastrugi, all across the strait, have been across, the main south by east, and the other east-south-east, but these are a great study here. The hard snow is striated with long wavy lines, crossed with lighter wavy lines. It gives a sort of herringbone effect. After depositing this extra load, we proceeded up the Farrar Glacier. Curious low ice-foot on left. No tide crack. Sea ice very thinly covered with snow. We are getting delightfully fit. Bowers, treasure, all round. Evans, much the same. Simpson, learning fast. Find the camp life suits me well, except the turning out at night. Three times last night. We were trying nose-nips and face-guards, marching head to wind all day. We reached Cathedral Rocks on the 19th. Here we found the stakes, placed by right across the glacier, and spent the remainder of the day and the whole of the twentieth in plotting their position accurately. Very cold wind down glacier increasing. In spite of this, Bowers wrestled with theodolite. He is really wonderful. I have never seen anyone who could go on so long with bare fingers. My own fingers went every few moments. We saw that there had been movement, and roughly measured it as about thirty feet. The old Ferrar glacier is more lively than we thought. After plotting the figures, it turns out that the movement varies from 24 to 32 feet at different stakes. This is seven and a half months. This is an extremely important observation, the first made on the movement of the coastal glaciers. It is more than I expected to find, but small enough to show that the idea of comparative stagnation was correct. Bowers and I exposed a number of plates and films in the glacier, which have turned out very well, auguring well for the management of the camera on the southern journey. On the 21st we came down the glacier and camped at the northern end of the foot. There appeared to be a storm in the strait, cumulus cloud over Erebus and the whalebacks, a very stormy look over Lister occasionally, and drift from peaks, but all smiling in our happy valley. Evidently this is a very favoured spot. From thence we jogged up the coast on the following days, dipping into New Harbour and climbing the moraine, taking angles and collecting rock specimens. 
At Cape Bonacci we found a quantity of pure quartz in situ, and in it veins of copper ore. I got a specimen with two or three large lumps of copper included. This is the first find of minerals, suggestive of the possibility of working. The next day we sighted a long low ice wall, and took it at first for a long glacier tongue, stretching seaward from the land. As we approached we saw a dark mark on it. Suddenly it dawned on us that the tongue was detached from the land, and we turned towards it, half recognising familiar features. As we got close we saw similarity to our old Erebus glacier tongue, and finally caught sight of a flag on it, and suddenly realised that it might be the piece broken off our old Erebus glacier tongue. Sure enough, it was. We camped near the outer end, and climbing on to it soon found the depot of fodder left by Campbell, and the line of stakes planted to guide our ponies in the autumn. So here firmly anchored was the huge piece broken from the glacier tongue in March, a huge tract about two miles long, which has turned through half a circle, so that the old western end is now towards the east. Considering the many cracks in the ice mass, it is most astonishing that it should have remained intact throughout its sea voyage. At one time it was suggested that the hut should be placed on this tongue. What an adventurous voyage the occupants would have had! The tongue, which was five miles south of Cape Evans, is now forty miles west-northwest of it. From the glacier tongue we still pushed north. We reached Dunlop Island on the 24th, just before the fog descended on us, and got a view along the stretch of coast to the north which turns at this point. Dunlop Island has undoubtedly been under the sea. We found regular terraced beaches with rounded, water-worn stones all over it. Its height is sixty-five feet. After visiting the island it was easy for us to trace the same terrace formation on the coast. In one place we found water-worn stones over a hundred feet above sea level. Nearly all these stones are erratic, and, unlike ordinary beach pebbles, the undersides which lie buried have remained angular. Unlike the region of the Ferrar Glacier and New Harbour, the coast to the north of Cape Bernacci runs on in a succession of rounded bays fringed with low ice walls. At the headlands and in irregular spots, the Nysic base rock and portions of moraines lie exposed, offering a succession of interesting spots for a visit in search of geological specimens. Beyond this fringe there is a long undulating plateau of snow rounding down to the coast. Behind this again are a succession of mountain ranges with deep-cut valleys between. As far as we went, these valleys seemed to radiate from the region of the summit reached at the head of the Ferrar Glacier. As one approaches the coast, the tablecloth of snow in the foreground cuts off more and more of the inland peaks, and even at a distance it is impossible to get a good view of the inland valleys. To explore these over the ice cap is one of the objects of the Western Party. So far I never imagined a spring journey could be so pleasant. In the afternoon of the 24th we turned back, and covered nearly eleven miles, camped inside the glacier tongue. After noon on the 25th we made a direct course for Cape Evans, and in the evening camped well out in the Sound. Bowers got angles from our lunch camp, and I took a photographic panorama, which is a good deal overexposed. We only got two and a half miles on the 26th, when a heavy blizzard descended on us. We went on against it, the first time I have ever attempted to march into a blizzard. It was quite possible but the progress very slow, owing to wind resistance. 
decided to camp after we had done two miles. Quite a job getting up the tent, but we managed to do so, and get everything inside clear of snow, with the help of much sweeping. With care and extra fuel, we have managed to get through the snowy part of the blizzard, with less accumulation of snow than I ever remember. And so everywhere, all-round experience is helping us. It continued to blow hard throughout the 27th, and the 28th proved the most unpleasant day of the trip. We started facing very keen, frost-biting wind. Although this slowly increased in force, we pushed doggedly on, halting now and again to bring our frozen features round. It was two o'clock before we could find a decent site for a lunch camp under a pressure ridge. The fatigue of the prolonged march told on Simpson, whose whole face was frostbitten at one time. It is still much blistered. It came on to drift as we sat in our tent, and again we were weather-bound. At three the drift ceased, and we marched on, wind as bad as ever. Then I saw an ominous yellow fuzzy appearance on the southern ridges of Erebus, and knew that another snowstorm approached. Foolishly hoping it would pass us by, I kept on, until Inaccessible Island was suddenly blotted out. Then we rushed for a campsite, but the blizzard was on us. In the driving snow we found it impossible to set up the inner tent, and were obliged to unbend it. It was a long job getting the outer tent set, but thanks to Evans and Bowers it was done at last. We had to risk frostbitten fingers, and hang on to the tent with all our energy, got it secured inch by inch, with not such a bad speed, all things considered. We had some cocoa, and waited. At 9 p.m. the snowdrift again took off, and we were now so snowed up we decided to push on in spite of the wind. We arrived in at 1.15 a.m. pretty well done. The wind never let up for an instant. The temperature remained about minus 16 degrees, and the 21 statute miles which we marched in the day must be remembered amongst the most strenuous in my memory. Except for the last few days we enjoyed a degree of comfort which I had not imagined impossible on a spring journey. The temperature was not particularly high. At the mouth of the Ferrar it was minus 40 degrees, and it varied between minus 15 degrees and minus 40 degrees throughout. Of course, this is much higher than it would be on the barrier, but it does not in itself promise much comfort. The amelioration of such conditions we owe to experience. We use one-third more than the summer allowance of fuel. This, with our double tent, allowed a cosy hour after breakfast and supper, in which we would dry our socks, etc., and put them on in comfort. We shifted our footgear immediately after the camp was pitched, and by this means kept our feet glowingly warm throughout the night. Nearly all the time we carried our sleeping bags open on the sledges. Although the sun does not appear to have much effect, I believe this device is of great benefit, even in the coldest weather. Certainly by this means our bags were kept much freer of moisture than they would have been, had they been rolled up in the daytime. The inner tent gets a good deal of ice on it. I don't see any easy way to prevent this. The journey enables me to advise the geological party on their best route to Granite Harbour. This is along the shore, where for the main part the protection of a chain of grounded bergs has preserved the ice from all pressure. Outside these, and occasionally reaching to the headlands, there is a good deal of pressed-up ice of this season, together with the latest of the old broken pack. Travelling through this is difficult, as we found on our return journey. Beyond this belt we pass through irregular patches where the ice, 
freezing at later intervals in the season, has been much screwed. The whole shows the general tendency of the ice to pack along the coast. The objects of our little journey were satisfactorily accomplished, but the greatest source of pleasure to me is to realise that I have such men as Bowers and Petty Officer Evans for the southern journey. I do not think that harder men or better sledge travellers ever took the trail. Bowers is a little wonder. I realised all that he must have done for the Cape Crozier party in their far severer experience. In spite of the late hour of our return, everyone was soon afoot, and I learnt the news at once. E. R. Evans, Gran, and Ford had returned from the corner camp journey the day after we left. They were away six nights, four spent on the barrier under very severe conditions. The minimum for one night registered minus seventy-three degrees. I am glad to find that corner camp showed up well. In fact, in more than one place, remains of last year's pony walls were seen. This removes all anxiety as to the chance of finding the one-ton camp. On this journey Ford got his hand badly frostbitten. I am annoyed at this, as it argues want of care. Moreover, there is a good chance that the tip of one of the fingers will be lost, and if this happens, or if the hand is slow in recovery, Ford cannot take part in the Western Party. I have no one to replace him. E. R. Evans looks remarkably well, as also Gran. The ponies look very well, and all are reported to be very buckish. Wednesday, October the 3rd. We have had a very bad weather spell. Friday, the day after we returned, was gloriously fine. It might have been a December day, and an inexperienced visitor might have wondered why on earth we had not started to the south. Saturday supplied a reason. The wind blew cold and cheerless, and on Sunday it grew worse, with very thick snow which continued to fall and drift throughout the whole of Monday. The hut is more drifted up than it has ever been. Huge piles of snow behind every heap of boxes, etc. All our paths are foot higher. Yet in spite of this the rocks are rather freer of snow. This is due to melting, which is now quite considerable. Wilson tells me the first signs of thaw were seen on the 17th. Yesterday the weather gradually improved, and today has been fine and warm again. One fine day in eight is the record immediately previous to this morning. E. R. Evans, Debenham and Gran set off to the Turk's Head on Friday morning, Evans to take angles and Debenham to geologise. They have been in their tent pretty well all the time since, but have managed to get through some work. Gran returned last night for more provisions and set off again this morning. Taylor is going with him for the day. Debenham has just returned for food. He is immensely pleased at having discovered a huge, slicken-sided fault in the lavas of the Turk's Head. This appears to be an unusual occurrence in volcanic rocks, and argues that they are of considerable age. He has taken a heap of photographs, and is greatly pleased with all his geological observations. He is building up much evidence to show volcanic disturbance independent of Erebus, and perhaps prior to its first upheaval. Mears has been at Hut Point for more than a week. Seals seem to be plentiful there now. Dimitri was back with letters on Friday, and left on Sunday. He is an excellent boy, full of intelligence. Ponting has been doing some wonderfully fine cinematograph work. My incursion into photography has brought me in close touch with him, and I realise what a very good fellow he is. No pains are too great for him to take to help and instruct others, whilst his enthusiasm for his own work is unlimited. His results are wonderfully good, 
and if he is able to carry out the whole of his programme, we shall have a cinematograph and photographic record which will be absolutely new in expeditionary work. A very serious bit of news today. Atkinson says that Jehu is still too weak to pull a load. The pony was bad on the ship and almost died after swimming ashore from the ship. He is one of the ponies returned by Campbell. He has been improving the whole of the winter, and Oates has been surprised at the apparent recovery. He looks well and feeds well. Though a very weedily built animal compared with the others. I had not expected him to last long, but it will be a bad blow if he fails at the start. I am afraid there is much pony trouble in store for us. Oates is having great trouble with Christopher, who didn't at all appreciate being harnessed on Sunday and again to-day he broke away and galloped off over the flow. On such occasions Oates trudges manfully after him, rounds him up to within a few hundred yards of the stable, and approaches cautiously. The animal looks at him for a minute or two, and canters off over the flow again. When Christopher, and indeed both of them, have had enough of the game, the pony calmly stops at the stable door. If not too late, he is then put into the sledge, but this can only be done by tying up one of his forelegs. When harnessed, and after he has hopped along on three legs for a few paces, he is again allowed to use the fourth. He is going to be a trial, but he is a good, strong pony, and should do yeoman's service. Day is increasingly hopeful about the motors. He is an ingenious person, and has been turning up new rollers out of a balk of oak supplied by Mears, and with Simpson's small motor as a lathe. The motors may save the situation. I have been busy drawing up instructions and making arrangements for the ship, shore station, and sledge parties in the coming season. There is still much work to be done, and much, far too much, writing before me. Time simply flies, and the sun steadily climbs the heavens. Breakfast, lunch, and supper are now all enjoyed by sunlight, whilst the night is no longer dark. Notes at End of Volume when they, after their headstrong manner, conclude that it is their duty to rush on their journey all weathers. Pilgrim's Progress. Has any grasped the low grey mist which stands ghost-like at eve above the sheeted lands? A bad attack of integrity. Who is man, and what his place? Anxious, asks the heart perplexed. In the recklessness of space, worlds with worlds thus intermixed, what has he, this atom creature, in the infinitude of nature? F. T. Palgrave It is a good lesson, though it may be a hard one, for a man who has dreamed of a special literary fame, and of making for himself a rank among the world's dignitaries by such means, to slip aside out of the narrow circle in which his claims are recognised, and to find how utterly devoid of significance beyond that circle is all he achieves and all he aims at. He might fail from want of skill or strength, but deep in his sombre soul he vowed that it should never be from want of heart. Every durable bond between human beings is founded in or heightened by some element of competition. R. L. Stevenson All natural talk is a festival of ostentation. R. L. Stevenson No human being ever spoke of scenery for two minutes together, which makes me suspect that we have too much of it in literature. 
the weather is regarded as the very nadir and scoff of conversational topics. R. L. Stevenson End of chapter 14, part 2